Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Santiago Chaval wanted to be a classical guitarist until he realised he'd never be another Julian Bream. Instead, he studied accountancy and finance before going on to found one of Mendoza's most successful wineries, Achaval Ferrer. Listen to his chat about Malbec, extreme sights, his friendship with the Italian winemaker Roberto Cipresso, and what he's achieved at Matavini after the sale of Achaval Ferrer. Hi, Santiago, how are you? Good afternoon, Tim. Doing fine in the middle of a month. Vacations in the mountains in Cordoba, far away from the vineyards. And uh, I had to come to a truck stop to get a Wi-Fi hotspot. There's, <laughs> there's no connectivity in the mountains in Cordoba. So, so there might be a bit of noise, mother, or there's not? There's going to be a little bit of noise. I apologize for that. This is the best I could do on a Sunday in the middle of the vacations. Okay, but well, it's, 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 it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you. So it's worth the, tr- the travel. It's lovely to see you uh, and to talk to you. Anyway, listen, lots to talk about. Um, Matavini, Achavo Ferrer, you know, your background, which is fascinating. Um, let's start with everyone can hear that you speak excellent English and you were actually born in the States, weren't you, in, in, in Minnesota, in Rochester. Yes. Are, are there any vines there? I think not. There may be some Concord and Norton, you know, the, the very rustic... Uh, uh, early winemaking varieties that the pioneers used that couldn't grow uh, fungal, uh, fungal resistance into the uh, European vineyards. And what's the place best known for? They're not known for its wines, is it? Let's face it. Uh, it, is, it is known for the Mayo Clinic. Actually, that, ah. that is a medical doctor. He was working at the Mayo Clinic, and I was born there. And talk, going to your remark on the English... They did not teach me any Spanish until we came to Argentina. So they kept wow. Spanish as a private language, and uh, they only taught us English. And, and, and they were Argentinians, and yes. you, they took you back to Córdoba, where you are on holiday, yeah. uh, as a six-year-old, is that right? Six years old. And uh, I arrived there. I, you know how nowadays when your kid goes to the first day of class, there's this adaptation period, and mom stays with the kid a few hours? Uh, I was six years old. They dropped me off the curb of the of a public school and say, see you at noon. And I had not a word of Spanish. <laughs> I had to d- deal with it on my own. <laughs> I mean, were they wine drinkers? I mean, you know, the medical profession doctors are, are famously keen on wine. Did they introduce you to wine at a young age, have this vision of you kind of drinking uh, wine as an eight-year-old or something? No, no. Uh, Dad is a wine drinker. I saw him uh, have wine at every meal. Um, uh, during the week and on weekends, but he had this, uh, his medical upbringing was, you know, Mayo Clinic, American Midwest, a very still this puritanical uh, thing there about alcohol, and he decided that I would only drink when I turned 18, which is legal in Argentina. And uh, so when I turned 18, I said, okay, Dad, pass the wine, please. And he said, you haven't read the fine print the fine print says that you can buy your own wine. So <laughs> I actually did not uh, did not gain a wine education with my dad. Uh, I had to wait okay. for that. 
But it's interesting that you're you're perfectly bilingual. I mean, you're you're one of the most bilingual people I know in Argentina. I mean, do you feel American deep down or Spanish? Or rather Argentina, I mean, or a bit of both? Which language do you dream in, English or Spanish? I feel a bit of both. And it takes me only, say, when I travel to the U.S., it takes me only a couple of days to be, begin dreaming in English, or, which is maybe more revealing, if I bang my toe against the bed, the bed um, I will curse in English. <laughs> uh, with but all, what about when you're in Argentina? Do you curse in Argentina, uh, in, Argentina in Spanish? Argentina, yeah, I go uh, reverse uh, to curse in Spanish. <laughs> okay. And I mean, how does that affect your personality, do you think, having these two halves to it, really? I think it opens your brain up to accept a lot of realities. Uh, for what they are, uh, maybe not judge them, and uh, maybe just uh, uh, see as objectively as possible and know that there are different things around than the ones you grew up with. I think that's the main take uh, on this multicultural, multinationality thing that I have. I mean, they're, they're such different places, aren't they, America and Argentina? Yes. I mean, what, what, what do you like most about the two of them? Uh, well, Argentina is the sense of... Uh, community, friendship, family, which I think is more tightly knit than in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., I'm fascinated about the possibilities of doing things, of uh, yeah. accomplishing things, of uh, being an entrepreneur and counting on the background to be to respond to you. And, uh, having a, and the economy is a bit stronger as well, isn't it? Well, and having a supplier that says, uh, I will deliver such day, and not having to call him a week before uh, and yeah. two days before, just in case he does not deliver. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we can hear some children screaming uh, in the background. I, I hope they're not your grandchildren. I, not mine. <laughs> no, I have five of those. Uh, so, uh, and that's one of the reasons I came to the hotspot because they're uh, they're all escape them. <laughs> yeah, they're all over the house. <laughs> Yeah. Listen, you qualified in, in accountancy and finance at Cordoba University, where you are now, and they're kind of underrated skills in the wine industry, I think, sometimes. Um, yeah. But you've got no formal training in enology. You've never done that. I mean, has, has that been a help, help or a hindrance? I mean, I know you're a great reader and you're a thinker and you're a very intelligent human being and you watch, don't you? I, I, I was lucky to have a great friend and mentor and teacher and Roberto Cipres, who is an Italian winemaker, he works in Tuscany and consults throughout Italy. Um, so I'd say I attended a private university. Um, I like your question in the sense it was, is it help? And um, I think it was a bit of a help to start doing this when I was in my 30s. And um, I think sometimes in winemaking schools, they grab a kid who's 16, 17 years old, straight out of high school, and they may imprint a lot of this is how it's done. And I approached it with a more uh, adult, say, mindset and the ability to question, okay, it's, it is done this way, but it, is this necessarily what our grapes need? Is this necessarily what the, the, compatible with the, our winemaking goal? And um, we didn't question as a rebellious streak or just looking for originality for its own sake, I was questioned to trying to find a better path. And yeah. uh, uh, we started doing things differently um, than the winemaking books, books say. Uh, 
I don't know. Low- and, it, and, it, and it helped having Roberto there, who is a trained enologist. So, and he, so he's yeah. a safety net in a way, yeah? Yes, he was the safety net. And, uh, and he was the guy who said, listen, stop. This may be not the thing we need right now. Um, yeah. I remember back in 2003, we had a big heat wave uh, at the end of February. So it actually, it is the same heat wave Bordeaux had in, in August 2003. And yeah, yeah. And uh, we started getting grapes with a 16% potential alcohol, and Roberto was pulling his hair out and said, uh, "We, you know, the, the only solution is to add water, but we just raised these concentrated, complex, balanced grapes. So it would be a crime to add water. Actually, in Argentina, it is a crime to add water. <laughs> literally. <laughs> literally. Um, yeah. <laughs> And uh, he said, well, why don't we try evaporating a bit of the alcohol? And he bought a, a couple of fans and started hanging the fans over the open pump-over sumps. And we slowly observed that it actually was evaporating alcohol. So we avoided adding the water. And then we started refining the process. But uh, that was Roberto's discovery or intuition. Say He's very creative and uh, it leads to... Uh, insights that otherwise we wouldn't have had. I mean, you, you, we'll talk about him a bit more because you worked with him at, at Chaval Ferrer and yes. then also now at Matavini. I just wonder, what, you know, why do you two guys work together work together so well? Because he's Italian, you know, you're American, Argentinian. Uh, what is it about the two of you that works, you think? It's a strange friendship because, and partnership. We've been partners and friends now for 25 years. And we never had stood toe-to-toe and nose-to-nose uh, in, in a fight. Uh, we didn't, it didn't happen. So um, I don't know. It, it may help, like, you know, those ma- marriages that are uh, at a distance, people are not together so much. He's in Italy, I'm in Argentina. He acknowledges my leadership in a lot of things. I acknowledge his leadership in the winemaking area. Um, I'm a, we complement each other, but he's a, he's a brainstormer. I'm a, yeah. I'm a idea filter. <laughs> so it's, it's the business brain and the wine brain, but you've I, got a wine I, brain as well. Yes, but I, what I, I do is I recognize good ideas and I, I'm kind of able to separate the wheat from the chaff in that yeah. sense. Yeah. Because you went to Stanford to do your MBA, didn't you? Yeah. And you started to visit the Napa Valley, I think, as a tourist, really, in, in 1988. Exactly, as a tourist. We, yeah. we went drinking, yeah. not even wine tasting. Yeah. We went drinking. <laughs> and what do you remember of that time? You know, Were there wineries that inspired you, Mondavi, for example? I, I don't remember wineries uh, that inspired me very much. I think this is the whole ecosystem, the vineyards. This was back in 87, 88. Uh, it was a time you could walk into the barrel room, you could talk to the cellar rats, you could walk into the vineyards. It was not as regimented as it is now. Um, and I think the whole ecosystem started fascinating me. And um, the connection of wine with history, with sociology, with a human survival, all this started appealing tremendously to me. And uh, at the same time, I had teachers that were encouraging us to drop whatever career we had and find our passion and do something new. And I, that was also strange to me. I came from a, a, I'd say, conservative background in Cordoba. Normally, if you got a degree in law, you would retire as a lawyer. 
So uh, this encouragement to do something new, I said, okay, so you can change. Okay, when I'm grown up, I was 27. <laughs> when I grow up, I want to be a winemaker. Or something. And uh, I formed the purpose uh, there. In, in, uh, oh, so, so those visits to the Napa Valley made you think, hey, I want to do wine. Yes, exactly. The visits and the walks in the vineyards and uh, the friends I made over there that also shared this passion for wine. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this. Uh, and I, I turned it into a purpose. And then, of course, I kicked it as far ahead as I could responsibly yeah. because I had to go back, work for the company that had financed the MBA. So I knew it was some years down the road. But 10 years after getting my degree, I was already a founding partner of Achao Alferrer. So that was, that was what, 1998, wasn't it? And yes. you, you talked about Roberto Cipreso, who yes. was involved. And, and the Ferrer bit of the Achava Ferrer was Manuel Ferrer. Yes. I just wonder, how, how did the project start? How did you find these guys, or how did they find you? And how did you select the vineyards you wanted to work with? Well, Manuel was, uh, worked with me at the same company. And uh, we were uh, the two young guys in the middle of teams of uh, middle-aged managers. So we bonded. And we tra had to travel together to a couple of the places regularly. And uh, as and I was obsessed with wine. And you know what a, a guy who's obsessed does? He talks about his passion. And Manuel started hearing this and said, Santiago, if you invest in wine, I'd like to invest with you. And I said, OK, let's do it. And he said, by the way, now that you've accepted my, my investment, my partnership, he said, I know a cool Italian winemaker. Ah, uh, he knew him. He knew Roberto. He knew Roberto, yes. He knew uh. Roberto um, through a, another guy who's an Italian uh, co-pilot of a rally team. You know, the yeah. dirt, dirt road uh, car racing uh, rally championship. Uh, yeah. Manuel knew the co-pilot of a very good winning team that uh, was twice <laughs> world champion and that kind of thing. With and, and how did you select the vineyards? I mean, it was presumably easier in those days to find good grapes because there wasn't everybody trying to buy them, right? There wasn't everybody trying to buy them. We uh, were lucky. We arrived in a, in a vacuum. Uh, there was, Catena was not out there yet, the brand. They worked through San Felicien uh, as their premium brand. Um, there was no small size winery, maybe Finca La Anita, but uh, nobody else was out there doing high quality, low volumes. Um, and uh, we started uh, buying a piece of land in Tupungato. And uh, then we started driving around looking for more land. And we found a very old, uh, unkempt, uh, un messy, full of weeds vineyard in Altamira. Mm -hmm. And we called it Finca Altamira. And we harvested those grapes three days after buying the vineyard for the price of the raw land. Those, so did you bought they bought all these vineyards? Did you? We bought the old vineyards like Finca uh, yeah. Altamira, Finca Bella Vista, the, and we found out that these vineyards had the potential to uh, make wines of character, uh, yeah. same variety, same winemaking, but distinctively mm. different character. Mm. Uh, Altamira from Bella Vista. And, and was it always Malbec or other varieties too? It, it was always Malbec. Uh, very yeah. early on, we recognized that Malbec has the, in terms of the ad, both the adaptability to different areas and the responsiveness to the local characteristics, Malbec uh, creates a, a more terroir-driven wine than other yeah. varieties. 
Cabernet Franc does it too. Ala Vigil is doing his and Amigos, the grand yeah, enemies, amazing one. Uh, on Cabernet yeah. Franc. But yeah. I think Malbec has more adaptability and responsiveness to terroir than Cabernet Franc does. Yeah. I mean, who determined the styles of wine that you made? Was it was it the place? Was it you guys sitting down saying, we want to make this style? Did you, were you influenced by Napa or by, by the French or what, what, what influenced you? No, I, I think uh, by, back then I was merely a listener to what Roberto was saying. Um, you know what? Uh, yeah, the Italians, I suppose. <laughs> but he, yeah. well, the first thing he said, Santiago, I will not bring Tuscany into Mendoza. I'm here to yeah. listen to the land to listen to the old guys, the guys with wrinkles and brown skin and, and dirt under the knee, uh, the nails. I will listen and then we will think what we do. Yeah. I would say if I could, I can identify one episode that I think was pivotal in, in, uh, in defining our style, which is Pink Altamira was uh, abandoned almost in viticulturally. And this uh, made the yields, tiny, tiny, tiny yields. Uh, it was yielding less than a ton per acre, less than 15 hectoliters a hectare. Um, no, roughly 15 hectoliters a hectare. So very minuscule yields. And we loved the wine when we made it. And it said, and then the question came up, what if we managed the other Malbec vineyards that we started finding? To those same yields, lower yields, uh, okay. a lower metabolic yeah. rate. Uh, like it's, it, yeah. I wouldn't call it the bonsai of of uh, wine growing, but it is. It, <laughs> it is something. It's something like that. You, it's a lower yeah. metabolic rate, a lower production, uh, a balance at a lower equilibrium uh, that gives you this complexity and textural uh, differences that I think we have. I mean, you've talked about Argent uh, Malbec reflecting its terroir, and they're very different expressions of the grape. Well, what is it that you like most about, about Malbec? I mean, apart from that, obviously, but what, what makes it easy to work with? What makes it so successful in Argentina? Um, I think that it, 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 it grows great wine uh, from uh, Patagonia to Jujuy, from mm -hmm. 300 meters above sea level to 3,800 meters above sea level. In every in any area that I've worked in. When it ripens Malbec, Malbec is the best wine in that area. I've yeah. I've made Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, Petit Verdot. I'm I've worked with Grenache and Mouvedre, and in any in all those vineyards, I've tried to make a super duper ultra non plus ultra uh, <laughs> wine. But in all those vineyards, I end up the best wine we end up making is a Malbec. So yeah, it, it's a uh, it's uh, at some point you have to realize nature is telling you something. <laughs> it's found its place, right? I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. 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 I mean, Atavo Ferrer was, was, was successful very quickly, you know, extremely successful. I mean, were you surprised? You said, think, wow, how did we get that so right? I, I was surprised. Roberto would tell us, listen, there are people that work at generations in Europe and don't get the level of success that we have. Part, part of that was that we started with a blank sheet. We had no vineyards. We had no father or grandfather to contradict. Uh, we had no uh, influence of older practices and older generations. We could pick and choose. And, uh, and we had a talented winemaker in Roberto. We had a headstrong CEO in, in myself. Uh, 
that I would stay the course and uh, do it until we got it right. Um, that helped. That helped too. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you sold the winery, what, 2011, although you stayed on as consultant yeah. winemaker and CEO, I think, till 2013, and then winemaker 2015. Why did you sell? I mean, you'd built this incredible brand. Was it an offer you couldn't refuse, or did you just think it's time to do something else? I was looking for a minority shareholder, minority partner, because Roberto had to sell his his shares. Remember, this was 2010. We started looking for the investor. It was at the back end of the big crisis, 2008 and nine. Roberto had had a, a series of missteps economically in Italy. He needed the money. Mm. And I, uh, the first offer I got was for a majority, not for a minority uh, portion of the winery. And so um, I thought about it. I took my wife to the beach on vacation and said, we, we have this. What, what are we going to do? And partially the 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 decision was driven by the fact that everything I had in this world was invested in the winery. And I told yeah. my wife, listen, I would not sell. I don't, I would not recommend selling for my pleasure, but as a husband and as a father, I have to tell you that if uh, I get an, uh, an ACV, uh, if I get uh, hit by a train or my plane falls, um, this kind of money you will not get from uh, Manuel because he doesn't have this kind of money. Mm. So yeah. I sold more as a as a family responsibility, uh, with uh, with pain and uh, and uh, I only did it because I was staying on as a consultant. Uh, actually, yeah. I wouldn't have done. But it. now you now you've gone, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I I left in 2015, four years after selling. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you've been working on Matavini, as it were, from 2008, where you are now, again with Roberto Cipresso. Uh, and the idea was then to look at how Malbec expresses itself on non-alluvial soils. Yeah. That's to say, not the soils that you find in the, in the Primera Zona, primarily uh, in, in Mendoza. So which, which soils were you looking for and where did you find them? Well, we were looking for something that was similar or akin to... Uh, Salta and, and Salta, the Molinos region, you know, uh, or the yeah. or the Yacochuya district. Mm -hmm. So very close to the mountain, to the hills, uh, and soils that had uh, rocks are were broken and not rounded by erosion. So right. soils where the the makeup of the of the subsoil was driven by only one or maybe two different kind of geologies, because we were fascinated by the ability of Salta to give character and personality to the wines. And this gave us, uh, it raised the question is, uh, why do these wines appeal so much, fascinate so much? Uh, why do these vineyards have more ability than the Mendoza vineyards to impart character? And uh, what our first um, answer, trying to find the answers, between the luminosity of the, the quality of the sunlight, the uh, height above sea level, of all those answers, the one that best fit the, the jigsaw puzzle was soils are different. And so then we said, okay, let's find uh, where in Mendoza do we find these soils? Uh, and it was not in the valleys. It was not on the Primera Zona. It was not in Uco. Because you know, all those are olivia 
cones uh, of, uh, of, of the rivers, of the glaciers. And we found it that we found these soils in the hillsides of the Precordillera, not the Andes, but the older, lower mountain range that is east of the Andes. And, and we'll talk about some of those sites in a minute, particularly El Chayal, where yeah. I've been with you, which is just a crazy place. But before that, just tell me quickly, you know, how is Matavini different from Achavalfria? Was Is Matavini Achavalfria too, in a sense? I think it, it, it could be a way of describing it in a sense, the vision and the the goal and the, the our magnetic north, the pursuits are still the same in the sense that we're trying to describe sites through an interpreter that is Malbec. Yeah. Um, so that is stays the same. We've only added another layer to say, hey, uh, not let's not only concentrate on old vines of the of the known viticultural areas, let's see what happens with non-alluvial uh, soils and necessarily you have to plant in those places because nobody had planted yeah. before there. Or maybe, you have alluvial soils too, don't you? We do, and I think it makes yeah. a lot of sense. You cannot ask yeah. a, a consumer. I could ask you to recognize alluvial from non-alluvial because you are a guy who has had a lot of Argentina wine. But I cannot ask a consumer to recognize that in a glass. But if I put two glasses in front of the, the consumer and say, here is finca, for example, finca is padril. Padril is alluvial, traditional mm -hmm. soils. And here is Piedras Viejas, or Canota. Mm. And then he, the differences between those two glasses are very, very immediately comprehensible. Yeah. yeah. And how many wines do you make now? I think there's eight. <laughs> one white, one white, seven reds, yeah? Yes. Uh, I think, no, we're going one white, eight reds now. <laughs> oh, eight reds. Nine, like right? nine, yes. Yeah, and your and your furthest north would be Salta, and your furthest south would be uh, furthest south is Zuko Valley, is Los Chacayes. Is Altamira, Alta, or Chacayes or Altamira? Los yeah? Chacayes. You are not working in Altamira. There's uh, yeah, I the same as I'm not working in Guadalajara. I think yeah. there's no value add to the winemaking world to have another wine from uh, Guadalajara. Uh, everybody yeah. is doing a thorough exploration of Guadalajara. Um, yeah. I'm going this summer, and uh, you, uh, you I don't think you've heard this, and nobody heard this before. So this is this is uh, fresh news for you. This summer we're growing uh, grapes in San Juan. Uh, oh, fantastic! From a place called uh, La Cienega, at yeah. 1,570 meters above sea level. It's a it's a north-south valley that connects Pedernal in the south to Sonda yeah. in the north. And there's one producer there already, isn't there? Yes, we are working with him. Yeah. It's, it's his vineyard. Yeah, oh, fantastic. So oh, that's a fantastic vineyard. Yes, and we're taking, oh. we're taking his vineyard and, yeah. and uh, managing the vineyard, that, blo that block of vineyard, yeah. to, our wine, to our wine grow and practice. Your vision, your yes. vision. Fantastic. Tell us a little bit about El Chelial. I mean, how did you discover that crazy place? And what were the ch challenges involved in planting it? I mean, man. Well, the first thing you need to know is that when we were in Salta with Roberto, Roberto said, I want to own a vineyard here. And he pointed downwards, and we were uh, a bit uh, close to Molinos. We were in Finca Umanal. The, uh, the, the owners had just bought Finca Umanal, and he wanted a piece of land there. Mm. And you've been there. You know, it's, yeah. it's very 
a very long drive. Let's put it that way. Uh, it is impossible to manage a high-quality uh, vineyard there and, and others in Mendoza. And uh, the vineyard uh, management seasons are in sync, so you have to be in one place or the other. I told Roberto, no, we can't do that. Let's find, as an answer to this, his urge, so let's find soils in Mendoza that can give us this kind of experience. And we started looking uh, around Mendoza, and uh, clearly it was not the Andes what would give us, because the Andes don't have soil yet. You have all these broken rock uh, cones. Uh, it's called dejection cones in geology. And uh, that would not give us uh, a growing place for vines. It clearly was the Precordizera. The problem was everybody wanted to sell us 50,000 hectares in the Precordizera. I said, no, I'm looking for 10, <laughs> 10 hectares, <laughs> not even 10,000, 10 hectares. So it took us some years to, it took us four years to find the land. And uh, we found this little piece of land that had, in a, in a 20 hectare block, it had three, uh, actually four distinctive soil types. And uh, some of them were on steep hillsides. Some of them were on medium-grade hillsides. Nobody had planted anything up there before. And I had a, a, a big, uh, I wouldn't say fight, but I had an exchange of ideas with Manuel. And Manuel said... Leona. Uh, Manuel said yeah. And Manuel yeah. said, I refuse. He says, this is going to be the sinkhole of uh, financial... Uh, <laughs> Uh, goods, goodies. All the money will go down the drain here. And Roberto and I would tell him, Manuel, this is the new viticultural frontier. And so, uh, and it, so it's proved. I, I said, uh, I like to say good news and bad news. The bad news is Robert, uh, Robert sorry, the bad news is Manuel was right. It turned mm -hmm. up to be a sinkhole of financial <laughs> war with us. Um, but uh, the good news is Roberto and I were right too. It was the most. They made amazing wines. It, yeah. yeah, it was the most expensive vineyard to plant and take to fruition. It took us ten years to get a first sizable crop after planting, uh, which is triple what it takes you in the valley floor. Um, and it, 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 the cost per hectare is. I stopped looking at the cost per hectare once. Uh, it arrived at a number. I don't want to look at this anymore. <laughs> there was nothing to be gained by looking at that number. That is a idea. Well, brilliant wine. So, but you also make wine in in Paso Robles, um, in the states, back yeah. in the states since two thousand nine. It's this project called the Farm Winery, isn't it? Correct. Um, just which styles of wine do you make there? Are you making Malbec there? No. Well, we make a tiny amount of Malbec because I like to see what Malbec does. But clearly, my, my Paso Robles, either the soil, the weather. Or the clonal selection, the, G the DNA that's available there, does not make the best wines in Paso Robles. Uh, we are making, uh, with um, my friends Jim and Asmina Madsen, my partners up there, we're friends since business school. Um, we're making uh, uh, four or five Cabernet Sauvignons and some Cabernet blends. Um, we're making low-alcohol Cabernet Sauvignons in Paso Robles, which is... Wow. I, I'm talking 13. How low? How low is low? 13 and a half. That's uh, low, yeah. In a country, a country say that makes 16% of Cabernets, I think yeah. that quite qualifies as low. Um, and you a bit of Garnacha as well, isn't there? You're making some Garnacha? We are making blends of uh, Grenache and Syrah. 
uh, all the way from okay. 100% Grenache, then yeah. a Grenache with some Syrah, then half and half, and then Syrah with some Grenache, and a pure Syrah. So all the, all the, the degradé, the continuum between yeah. Syrah and Grenache. We're not making, I, I make, we're not making Mouvedre because it ripens too late. I, yeah. I need to go back wow. to my paint job. So Paso is pretty cool in terms of the Pacific influence, isn't it? And where we are, it is. As you know, Paso, yeah. the further west you go, the cooler it gets, as you said, because of the Pacific Ocean. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah. And we're in the Adelaide district, which is the furthest west district on the north side of Paso. Uh, yeah. There's another area called York Mountain that is further west that is cooler yeah. than ours, but it, it is really cool. It, you know how it, you know it's cool? The Grenache, we have a high elevation Grenache, 1,800 feet. The Grenache is pale in color. It, uh, it has okay. the color of a Pinot Noir. That tells you that's yeah. a cool, a cool uh, wine-growing area. Yeah. I want to go back to, to Mendoza quickly, particularly to talk about the vines of Mendoza, which is another one of these great things you've been involved with, as well as Achavel Ferrer and Matavini. Just tell us a little bit about the Vines of Mendoza project, because it's, it's kind of where, play, where, where people can own little bits of the vineyard and make their own wines. Is that, is that how it works? That's how it works. These are um, a couple of American expats that I met in 2006, and they had, uh, they told me we have this crazy idea to sell private vineyards. And uh, would you like to consult for us? This was after the barbecue and after three bottles of wine. Um, so I said, uh, listen, you look, you seem like good guys. Uh, I like you, but let's first, I'd like to meet the land first. And uh, because clearly you want my name as a validation of there's nothing there. And you want some kind of validation that this this is going to work in terms of quality. Mm. I need to see the land, and uh, I saw the land, and we ran uh, rode horseback for hours, and they had dug a backhoe pits two meters down, uh, two and a half meters down, and I walked into those uh, pits, and I was fascinated. I had been making wine in Tupungato. This is a bit south of Tupungato soils that were better structured than Tupungato is. And I was, I, I told them, there's no doubt that we can make fascinating wines here. And, uh, so and it's in Los Chacayas, yeah? In Los Chacayas, which didn't yeah. exist as an appellation back then. Um, yeah. And so we planted and I stayed on as a consultant winemaker until now. Um, yeah. Are you so, still there? Yes, You're still there, aren't yes. you? Uh, there yeah. was a couple of years during the pandemic that I, I was not, uh, my one contract had expired and uh, there was no renewal. We're all back home looking at a wall. So, uh, <laughs> but now they've renewed a, a contract. So I'm again, again, uh, doing stuff with them. I, I own, yeah, I took my payment in vineyards, so I never left. Um, oh, so you own vineyards there as yes, well, part uh, of it. Substantial yeah. amount of vineyards. Throughout 14 years, I accrued a... And how many, how, how many vineyard owners are there, you know, where they're making their own brands there? There's, there's like 300 and something vineyard owners. There's, uh, uh, again, 300 and something hectares, almost 400 hectares planted. This winery... With every variety under the sun. I mean, it's got everything, every isn't it? Every variety. And the winery makes distinct fermentations, 400 and something distinct fermentations per year. I don't know any winery in the world that does that yeah. kind of thing. No winery, not, not even the custom yeah. crush facilities in Napa. Uh, those uh, maybe make 50, 60 different wines. 
This is yeah. 400. Uh, I uh, we were I was so involved with the setting up of this that I turned up to be to make good friends with uh, their winemaker Pablo Martorell. Uh, yeah, nice guy. And he's a good guy, and he's very talented. And uh, yeah. we've, we are now partnering on a new project uh, with uh, Pablo. It's going to be we, we start building the winery there in a in the winemaker's village uh, in a month. At a, Fantastic. At a, we're breaking ground in a month. I mean, you've got so much on your plate. You know, you've got that all these different projects. Um, but if you had time, is there anywhere else in the world you'd like to make wine? Maybe Italy? Would you like to go and do a little, uh, some, some something with Roberto over in Tuscany? Uh, I actually am. I am. I'm a partner in Roberto's Italian winery. I have ten percent of uh, of uh, Roberto Cipresa wines, the brand. Yeah, and we've done some wines there. And but I'm a. I don't want to overextend myself, and I believe in the joy of uh, of walking the vineyards and tasting the, the barrels in the barrel room. I would not want to have a, own a, this, a seat on an airplane. <laughs> I, I don't want to be on yeah. an airplane all the time. I like to – I travel too much as it is. I think uh, yeah. this is projects enough, and I like mm -hmm. to concentrate on what I'm doing. And uh, there's so much to learn every day and so much to observe and change and improve that I, I don't think I'll be taking uh, any... N nothing near, else. At least not another viticultural area, <laughs> another uh, country. At least, not, at least not that. I mean, tell us how you get away from wine, because I know as a kid you, you dreamed of being a, a classical guitarist until you suddenly realised that you weren't Julian Bream, right? Few people are, but only Julian Bream was Julian yeah, Bream. Well, but, I mean, do you still play the guitar? How do you get away from wine? Because you've got this very busy life. I play classical guitar. I have a, a one concert guitar in Mendoza. I have two in Cordoba. Uh, I, I, I brought one of them into the mountains. I play every day, almost every day. I, I said I play five days a week at least, and at least two hours, uh, maybe four hours a day, the days I'm lucky. Wow. Uh, well, that, you know, wow. One of the parts of not being talented is you need to practice a lot. You need to make up yeah. the lack of talent with practice, practice, <laughs> practice. <laughs> I think even people with talent practice, 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 don't they? They, they do. I, I don't know uh, who it was, but uh, one famous guitarist, I think it was Segovia, um, uh, said, if I don't practice one day, I notice, he said. If I don't practice two days, uh, the, the music critics notice. And if I don't practice three days, even the public will notice. <laughs> oh, that's a fantastic story on uh, which to end. Well, next time I see you, which is going to be very soon in Argentina, I hope you'll play the guitar for me. Uh, let's do that. Instead of climbing, instead of climbing rocks in a, in a weird vineyard, huh? <laughs> let's do it okay listen it's been fascinating talking to you thank you for sharing your story with us uh, i hope everybody's born with a bit of background noise but it, we explained why that was at the beginning uh, i'll see you very soon in, see you soon in argentina yes i apologize i apologize again from the, the poor connectivity and the background noise and it's been a pleasure to talking to you and to the audience i'll see you soon, see you bye, soon. Santiago. bye bye ciao ciao bye. take care Fascinating interview with one of the legends of the Argentinian wine industry. My apologies for some of the background noise. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Mathieu Chadronnier from Top Bordeaux Negociant CVBG. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. 
If you want to read more reports, articles, and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.